Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We've got a terrific Monday morning show for you. We start today with the never-ending saga over policing in the city of Surrey. Now, remember where we're at here on this now. The city wants to stick with the RCMP. The province wants the city to continue the transition to the Surrey Police Service. Let's go back to Friday here. Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke, here she is making that long-awaited announcement. Surrey needs a final answer on policing and the Surrey Council has decided with a vote held yesterday to retain the RCMP as our police force of jurisdiction. Okay, we do expect to have Solicitor General Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth here in the first half hour of the show and I know he has something to say about the situation. Let's check in first now with Anita Huberman, CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade. And I'm very pleased to welcome Anita back to the show. Anita, thank you for coming on this morning. Good morning, Mike. Okay, Anita, let's talk first of all about the decision by the City of Surrey, the vote by City Council to keep the RCMP. Your thoughts on that? Well, we're pleased. Uh, You know, certainly we've been advocating from day one to keep the RCMP and to focus on the needed wraparound supportive infrastructure supports that uh, the RCMP or any police force needs. And uh, Surrey has been left behind in terms of support for mental health, uh, those that are drug addicted, uh, homelessness, all of those pieces around judicial accountability, removing prolific offenders off of the streets. Uh, You know, we need to focus on what needs to be done and invested in in Surrey. And everyone's so tired of this whole policing mess in the city of Surrey. Okay, so you believe that the best way forward is just to stick with what's working, keep the RCMP, correct? Stick with the RCMP. It is working. Uh, but like any police force, uh, there there needs to be those wraparound support infrastructure pieces. And that is what needs to be focused on, a leveled coordination between the provincial, federal, and our municipal governments. And let's get on with it, remove the politics, and let's move forward for Surrey's economy. Okay, let's take a listen to the public safety minister. This is the minister in charge here. And the province wants the city of Surrey to continue with this transition to a new local police force. Mike Farnworth here, the public safety minister, here he is putting, telling Surrey what is required to keep the RCMP. Let's listen, then I'll get your thoughts. We continue to require a comprehensive plan from the city to meet the requirements laid out as necessary. In the absence of such a plan, this could quickly destabilize an already precarious situation in Surrey and significantly decreasing police presence in other areas of the province. Okay, Anita, this is something that he has cited frequently, that he's worried about public safety in the city of Surrey, he's worried about destabilizing other police forces if the city continues to insist on scrapping this whole transition. What do you think of that argument? Well, number one, public safety has already been destabilized and compromised in Surrey. There haven't been any new hires uh, for the RCMP, which is still the police of jurisdiction. 
there's been a transition to a new police force. And, uh, you know, really, there haven't been any new personnel to serve our growing population that is still growing by 1,200 to 1,400 people a month. The ongoing paradigm around debate about whether or not they've received a report is something that I can't comment on. But uh, it really, you know, all of this uh, public debate uh, between politicians has to stop. And and let's get on with with it. I mean, it is businesses that bear the burden of taxation of these political decisions and these uh, political stalls. Is your concern here that if, if the city continues this, this transition to a local police force, the Surrey Police Service, that it could end up costing the city a lot more money? I mean, the province has put a pile of money on the table here to help the city out, $150 million bucks. But do, are you concerned that there could be more costs down the road that could hit the city if we continue the transition? Well, either way, there's going to be a significant expense, uh, whether it's short-term or long-term. A new police force is going to require more, more than $150 million uh, in terms of an injection uh, to make it stabilize. Uh, Don't forget IT infrastructure training, all of those infrastructure pieces that a new police force does not have. Uh, Yes, taxpayers are going to be on the line, and that remains uncertain, uh, even to keep the RCMP. But it uh, it really is uh, an RCMP force that already has those infrastructure pieces. And then we can focus on moving forward on those wraparound pieces that I spoke of before. Okay. Speaking to Anita Huberman is my guest, CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade. Let me play one more clip here for you, Anita, from Mike Farnworth, the minister responsible here, saying, like, like, look, he believes the bottom line is public safety in the city of Surrey. Here's what he has to say, and I'll get your thoughts. When people call the police, they need to be confident that help will arrive. I must be satisfied that the city of Surrey's plan will ensure effective and adequate policing is maintained in Surrey and throughout the province. We will review all information provided by the city quickly to ensure that the people of Surrey remain safe. Anita Huberman, do you believe if the city sticks with the RCMP, the people of Surrey will be safe? Yes, they will be, but it needs to be a coordinated effort between all levels of government to really enhance the confidence of policing. And it's not only about the RCMP. You even take a look at uh, municipal police forces, the police in general, the, the discourse around confidence, stability. No matter which police force it is, there's a responsibility of governments to ensure that is the case. And those wraparound pieces that I spoke of before, that's going to go a long way in instigating that confidence. Anita, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you. As of today, uh, there's two parts of this story. Uh, One part is the vote on Friday, but the other part is the provincial responsibility for public safety. So we're waiting for the province to make the final decision. Okay, that's uh, Surrey Police Service Chief 
Norm Lipinski, uh, making it quite clear he wants the province to step in here, make the final call on the future of policing in Surrey. Will they stick with the RCMP like Surrey City Council wants, or do they continue the transition to a new local police force? Let's discuss it now with Mike Farnworth, BC Solicitor General. He's the Minister of Public Safety. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Mike, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Okay, Mike, is there a decision here on this file? The city of Surrey has made it quite clear to you and your government that they want to keep the RCMP. Will they be allowed to do that? So back in uh, April 28th, when I came forward with our decision around the plan that had been that, that the city and the RCMP had given us, I said the plan was lacking and that it would not ensure, in our, in our view, the analysis that we had done in terms of a transition safe and effective, uh, safe and effective policing. We laid out at that time there were two paths. Our recommended option, our recommended way was to proceed with the Surrey Police Service, acknowledge that that was not their preferred option, but uh, we would put the $150 million on the table to help uh, with those costs. We also said if they wanted to go back to the, uh, to the RCMP, then they had to uh, meet uh, the, a number of requirements, conditions that were spelt out. And particularly around in terms of restaffing, how that would take place, uh, costs, for example, and not pro- and and ensuring that uh, that uh, this could this could all be done, because my role as solicitor general is to ensure safe and effective policing, public safety, not just in Surrey but the rest of the province. Uh, Wednesday of last week, the um, the city um, tab- or gave the report to council that they had prepared. Um, they had their vote uh, on Thursday at two o'clock, and I have, and I said I would need to see the report because they didn't indicate that they were able to meet those requirements that had been uh, set out in order if they wanted to go back to the RCMP. Uh, we were told Friday that there would be that I would get that report. Um, I'm still waiting for that report, and in order as a statutory decision maker, I need to have all the information in front of me, and I've not got that at this point. Okay, so you're still waiting for the report. What what is your what is your instinct on this right now? I mean, the city is saying that they can meet all the conditions that you've that you've laid down, that you've just touched on, and that they can go forward with the RCMP. Is it your belief that that is possible at this point? Well, without the report, without all the information, a verbal assurance saying, oh, yeah, we can meet those, uh, those, 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 those conditions, requirements that you spelled out, that's not good enough. I have a statutory responsibility, not just in terms of policing in Surrey, but across the province. And the decision around Surrey has uh, significant implications in terms of policing right across B.C. That's why I've also uh, communicated uh, to Surrey today uh, that I need to have uh, that report uh, by one o'clock this afternoon, um, or I will uh, have to make a decision uh, on what can what is uh, safe and effective uh, policing, public safety in the city of Surrey, without that information. You want the report by one o'clock this afternoon. What if you don't get the report by one o'clock this afternoon? Then what happens? Then um, I would have to uh, meet with my uh, with my officials in, in my ministry, review the information that I have at this point in order to make a determination in terms of what is necessary for safe and effective policing in Surrey. I mean, the report has been uh, was given to the, uh, the Council of Surrey on Wednesday night. Um, they made the vote on Thursday. Uh, we were told that we would get the report, um, you know, on Friday afternoon. 
Uh, we've made repeated requests through the weekend, and we have still received nothing. Okay, are you prepared? I, I, I recall that the Mayor Brenda Locke had said that they were quite willing to give you this report as, as long as you, you signed a non-disclosure agreement around the report. Has that been, has that been a requirement been put to you as well? Oh, absolutely. And we said yes. Yeah. And in fact, okay. we were quite prepared to, to, to use the same non-disclosure agreement that, that they had signed. I mean, it's, you know, email it over, sign it. Um, like, I don't understand what the delay is in a report that has been uh, given to the council. It was voted on. Um, we were told we were going to get it uh, on Friday. And then we were told, no, we're not. Uh, and then it was, you know, repeated requests over the weekend. Um, and so, you know, those requirements are not negotiable uh, in terms of, of a return to the RCMP that, that the city would have to meet. And as the statutory decision maker with a responsibility for ensuring public safety, not just in, uh, in Surrey, but across the, the, the province, it's important uh, that I have that information in order to determine whether or not their plan will ensure safe uh, and effective policing, not just in Surrey, but also um, will not impact the rest of the province. Are you prepared to use the powers that you have under the BC Police Act to force the city of Surrey to go with this new police service, the Surrey Police I'm Service? I'm, I, that's why we need to have the, uh, the report, because I have a statutory responsibility under the Police Act to ensure uh, public safety and safe and effective policing, uh, not just in Surrey, but all right across the province. And if the city of Surrey says, hey, we can do that, uh, then fine. But in order to make that assessment, I need to see that report. And the reality is, is I have not seen it. Um, we, you know, we did a complete and comprehensive analysis uh, of the proposals of the plans submitted both by the city of Surrey and by the RCMP. Uh, we said that, you know, they did not meet what the, the requirements, what we were, what, what was needed in terms of safe and effective policing in, in doing a transition um, and laid out those two paths. And right I'm, now, we, yeah. in order to make that determination, I need that information. Mike, I'm looking at Section 4 of the Police Act, which says that on your recommendation, the Cabinet has the authority to enhance and reorganize policing in any municipality. Would you be prepared to make that recommendation if you do not receive this report by 1 o'clock this afternoon and tell the City of Surrey, bring the hammer down here, and tell them, look, you must go with the Surrey Police Service. Is that an option for you? My, my job is to ensure safe and effective policing in Surrey and the rest of the province, and I will do my job. Is, is that a yes, then, that you're, pre you're prepared to force the city of Surrey to go with this new police force? I've got, uh, I'm, 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 I'm hoping to receive this by 1 o'clock. Um, after uh, 1 o'clock, then I will meet with my officials, we will review the information that we have, uh, the reports that we've received to date, and then we will make a, a determination as to what will be safe uh, and effective policing in terms of Surrey uh, and also in terms of how it impacts on the, uh, the province. Uh, but the bottom line is, you know, there is a police act in place. Um, 
It, uh, it has requirements for me to do. Uh, but what's important is I receive the information, uh, and that's right. what uh, we've communicated to the city of Surrey. Okay, we're following it closely, to say the least. Minister, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. All right. Let's talk about the rules of the road now, especially as they apply to new drivers. Now, let's say you have a learner's license. You've got that L sticker on the back of your car. What if you are a novice driver under BC's system? You have the N on the back of your vehicle. Okay, if you get into some a jam here, you get into trouble, you get a ticket. Uh, Are you in line for even tougher penalties than a driver has the full license? Yeah, you are. You better be darn careful if you got that L or N on the back of your vehicle. It could cause you a lot of hassle. Have a listen to Kyla Lee here now. This is one of her latest videos on TikTok. I, I encourage you to give her a follow there. Uh, explaining some of how the rules work. And if you're a new driver, you better watch out. Have a listen. Police also view your level of inexperience as more aggravating in the circumstances. This can mean that they're more likely to issue you other tickets if they find other things wrong with your vehicle or wrong with your driving. It's more common for new drivers to get several tickets at once and thus more consequences, which can lead to greater driving prohibitions than it is for new drivers to get only a single ticket. Okay, those tickets could rack up here now if you are a new driver. Is that fair? I I guess you could argue maybe we should be tougher on inexperienced drivers. But I'll tell you what, you better be darn careful if you've got an L or N on the back of your vehicle. Let's discuss now with my guest, Paul Doroshenko, traffic lawyer, Acumen Law. It's always great to have him on. Paul, thank you for coming on today. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Mike. Okay, this is really interesting, and I've got a son, my oldest son, he's got an L on the back of the vehicle there, when he, he, he dri- occasionally drives the family minivan, I always tell him, man, you better be darn careful. So let's talk a little bit about this. What are the, Paul, what are the major differences here under the law when you have that L or N when it comes to getting a ticket? Yeah, you're a class 7 L or N, of course, you're under, uh, you know, this extra level of scrutiny by the superintendent of motor vehicles and if you get a ticket you end up with a conviction on your record they immediately look at your driving record right away like if you're a class five and you get one ticket nobody's even thinking about it but you're a a l or an n driver a class seven driver you get a ticket and your license will be immediately scrutinized and if you've got an l uh you're going to get a driving prohibition with one ticket doesn't matter what the ticket is one, one ticket going to trigger a driving prohibition. Okay, yeah, I mean it's uh, it's uh, it's uh, it's the shortest leash you could possibly imagine, right? Uh, yeah. You make one mistake and and you're issued a ticket, then uh, you know you you will be prohibited from driving. It's typically three months. Uh, of course, there's a process there, right? Then you can dispute it, but the mm. process is really restricted, and and you know few people accomplish much with their dispute. I mean, you might get it reduced from three months to. Uh, shorter period of time but it's still a driving prohibition on your record yeah for sure okay so let's talk if you have that l let's say you have the l on the back of your vehicle you've got your learner's license you get one one ticket let's say it's just okay let's say it's speeding 10 kilometers over the limit you you get a driving prohibition for that with an l correct yeah yeah 138 dollar ticket if you've got an l 
you're facing a driving prohibition. Absolutely. Right. So what happens is the ticket's recorded on your driving record if you don't dispute it, right? If you dispute it and you're successful, then it's not recorded on your driving record. But if you pay it uh, or you dispute it and lose, it's recorded on your driving record. And then basically a big red light flashes on top of a computer in the superintendent of motor vehicles office in Victoria. And it says, look at this person's driving record. Uh, and then they scrutinize the driving record and they say, well, look, you've got an unsatisfactory driving record. There's zero tolerance for tickets for a class seven L and yeah. we're, you know, to correct your behavior, we're sending you, you know, we're, we intend to prohibit you for three months. Oh. Um, and you've got 21 days from the date of that letter, not from the date you receive it. That's a very important thing. And people screw that up all the time. 21 days from the date of that letter. Yeah. to get your submissions and to explain why you shouldn't be prohibited or it should be a shorter driving prohibition. Okay. Uh, and, you know, you, you make your case, right? What if you have a, what if you're a novice driver, you've got the N, you got the N magnet on the back of your vehicle here. What if you get, you, you get a driving prohibition if you get one ticket or no? Well, the same red light flashes on the top of that computer, metaphoric red light, I guess, um, in uh, the superintendent of motor vehicles office and they look at it. Uh, and they'll look at how long you've had your end. If you've had your end for three months and you get a ticket, you're probably going to get a you're probably going to get a driving prohibition. If you've had your end for uh, two years, you might not get a driving prohibition with one. But if you get two, then you will. Uh, but you might get a driving prohibition with one. Well, it depends on depends on their review of your of your driving record. If it's a ticket for something serious like excessive speeding or cell phone, any cell phone ticket, by the way, kids, any cell phone ticket, going to trigger a driving prohibition if you're a Class 7 driver. Oh, boy. Okay. You better not touch that phone if you've got one of those those magnets on the back of your car. You heard your, your colleague there, Kyla Lee, in that video pointing out as well that, let's say, a driver has an L, an L driver, a learner's, learner's license. You're stopped by police. Are you are you at risk? Is that driver at risk of getting even more tickets? Like, do police place more scrutiny on this driver? Like she said in that video, you know, they could be taking a look at the condition of your vehicle, write you up another ticket for some for another infraction. Does that happen? It's something we see with great regularity. You get one ticket, and you know, it's it's much easier for the police officer to uh, to justify in their own mind that they're going to give you a ticket in this circumstance the second time. So, you know, you may be, I know you've been driving for decades, you probably have a clear driving record. Uh, you get pulled over for some minor infraction. You might get the lecture. The police officer might be saying to himself, it's not a perfect investigation here. I'm going to let this guy go without a ticket. But I'll tell you, if you've had a ticket before, right, um, that, that, uh, they, they're not going to do you that favor to allow you to keep, keep a clean driving record. Um, and they've got all that information, like the police uh, they have these automated license uh, recognition system. Your license plate information can just show up on their computer as you're driving around. Uh, and they have access to look at your driving history. And they can mm. see, you know, tickets that have been issued to you. They can also see information about tickets that, you know, times that you've been stopped where you weren't issued a ticket. They've got quite a bit of information there on you already, right? Okay. Um, and <laughs> you never know how they're going to deal with you in those circumstances, depending on your record. Here's the other thing. That's important for people to be aware of. Let's say you do get a ticket. You've got an N, you're a novice driver, you're, or you got that L, you're a learner. You get that ticket, you have a driving prohibition. The other thing that happens here is that the period that you must continue to be in that, display that L license, 
doesn't that reset and you start all over again and you've got to start at the beginning for having that L? Essentially, take a look at your license uh, if you're an L or N driver and on it, it'll say the first test date that you can uh, take your test to to go to the next level of the license. Right. Uh, and you want to do that as quickly as possible because, again, if you get a ticket, uh, then you end up prohibited. You end up prohibited and you start that time period over. And so you've, it's basically like you're stuck in purgatory for forever. Uh, and even police officers sometimes are very sympathetic about it. They'll say, look, I can see that you've got, you could get rid of your, your N right now. Uh, you know, I have to issue you this ticket, but I really would like you to go get rid of your N. Or, I, you know, I'm reluctant to give you this ticket because of this. Please dispute the ticket. Buy yourself some time to get rid of your N, uh, in, you know, to avoid the driving prohibition that's going to reset it. Mm. One so what you... people don't understand as well is that, you know, say you've got your N, okay, yeah. and you can go get your, do your test in a few weeks, and you get a ticket. And if you pay that ticket right then, it might trigger the driving prohibition and, and start it. But if you dispute the ticket, you might buy yourself enough time to at least go get rid of your N. Now, when they oh. reconsider, when they look at that conviction on your driving record down the road, they might still treat you like an N. They're entitled to do that. But at least you don't have to go back to being an N once you've got your class five. Okay, interesting. Okay, real quickly, Paul, would you say, like, is this fair? Do you think the system is fair to new, inexperienced drivers? I mean, obviously, it's tougher on drivers if you have that L or N and you get a ticket. That's quite clear. But maybe that's maybe that's the way it should be. Maybe that's a good thing. You know, as we can, these driver these drivers are riskier drivers, are they not? Well, you know, I see a lot of really careful drivers with their N, and probably because they know that they're under this uh, this level of scrutiny. But there are people who fall into this, you know, who have to drive. Young people often have to drive. Like, that's the type of job that they can get. Uh, if you're working for a contractor, for example, and you're a young, uh, a young guy, you're sent out driving all day long to go pick up another electrical box or a few, you know, two-by-fours, what have you. Uh, and uh, you, you, you are at greater risk of committing an offense when you drive a lot. You know, people have to acknowledge that. If you're on the road a lot, you have a greater chance that you're going to make a mistake. Um, and, uh, yeah, those people end up in, again, like in this situation where they basically can't get their license back. Uh, okay. It's just like they're, they're in perpetual purgatory. All right, my guest is Paul Doroshenko, and we continue to talk about BC's graduated licensing system. If you have an L or an N on the back of your vehicle, do not break the rules of the road. You're asking for trouble if you rack up a ticket here. Let's go to your phone calls, Jason and Kamloops. Hi, Jason, go ahead. Hey, Mike. Hi, Paul. Um, yeah, just a little bit about the with the L classification or the Class 7. Um, shouldn't the onus partly be on the person that's sitting next to the driver teaching them how to drive? Good point, Paul. Sure. Of course, you've got the, the person who's in there. Uh, you run a, a, a amber light, though. You're the one who's controlling the pedals. Um, and you get pulled over, and you might be sitting there with your dad beside you. <laughs> uh, it's humiliating for everybody, but people make mistakes. You know, it's just these things happen. And of course, you know, you're you're not driving a vehicle like a a driver training vehicle where you've got uh, can take control of over it. You're just driving your normal family vehicle. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. So there, there's no repercussions for the licensed driver in the passenger seat. No, right? um, no. and that's right. an interesting thing. You know, there's been lots of discussion about that over the years. A long time ago, there was somebody who was investigated for. Uh, 
they, they made the, the supervisor provide a breath test uh, and uh, wanted to punish oh. the supervisor. Um, oh. you know, how'd, that, how'd that work out? Uh, you know, I can't remember all of the facts of that one, but uh, yeah. I think it was a, a egregious mistake that the police made, and they ended up apologizing. Interesting. Let's go to Jeff calling from Fraser Heights. Hi, Jeff. Go ahead. Hi. Uh, I just wanted to say I uh, I own a sports car, or I used to, actually, but uh, and I was going less than 20 over in, uh, just on an empty road, and a cop went around the corner, and... He pulled me over. I got a ticket. And now uh, if I get like any other sort of ticket, my license is gone. And uh, my oh boy. reset. Okay. Do you have an N on your vehicle, Jeff? Yes, I do. Yeah. How old are you? I'm 17. You're 17. Okay. How much did, what was the penalty on that ticket? How much do you have to pay on that ticket? Uh, it was, I think, about 130, 140. Okay, and now, okay, so Paul, what is his situation here now? That resets for his N, is that correct? Well, if he's, if they prohibit him, I don't know if he's right. been convicted yet. Did they, I don't did know they prohibit, the process. Jeff, did they prohibit you from driving? No, I'm on probation, but if I get any other sort of ticket, like anything at all, then it's gone. The next one, oh boy, Paul, your thoughts. Yeah, well, he's on the, the as I say, the world's shortest leash. Uh, he's yeah. lucky that uh, he got the $138 ticket, not the $196 ticket. Otherwise, he'd probably be prohibited already. Okay. Uh, he may have uh, had a few months of driving. But, hey, that's what the police do. They hide around the corner. If you're speeding, they catch you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Welcome, welcome to the welcome to the NFL. Here, this is this is the way. This is the this is the rules. Stephen and Burnaby. Hi, Stephen. Go ahead. Hi, Mike. Uh, thanks for taking my call. I wanted to ask your guest sure. his opinion on uh, just the stickers that are on the back of your vehicle. It seems to me that unfairly targets these new drivers. It's like asking a criminal to wear an orange shirt for the rest of his life. It just opens the door to harassment. I think, in my view. Oh, okay. Well, do you are, do you, do you are you an N or an L driver yourself? I, I'm not anymore. I was. I don't know, 15 years ago or so, but um, yeah. my, both both myself and my friends have been pulled over for quote unquote a safety check, and we looked at each other after the after the cop left and said that's because we have an N on the back of our vehicle and he's just looking for something. A safety check, Paul. What do you think of that? Well, the stigma of the L or the N is significant, and I understand that. It's one of the reasons you want to get it away, get it rid of it quickly. The government can justify doing this uh, scheme because the problem with uh, the greater number of accidents and more dangerous accidents that happen with young drivers, not necessarily new drivers, but people who are very young uh, driving, getting pulled over for a safety check, you have no idea why the police officer pulled you over, and that's another topic for another day because in Canada, the police can pull you over for basically any reason. Uh, they just have to have a lawful reason, but the reason can be as as simple as to check your license. So really? they can pull you over to check your license, yeah. Okay, so yeah, that's, that's allowed. Is, uh, you don't have to have, like, probable cause? No, no, and it's a surprising right. thing for people because, of course, we all are fairly, uh, you know, uh, knowledgeable about American law because of yeah. YouTube videos and things like that. Uh, but uh, in Canada, okay. it's completely different. All right. Paul, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. My pleasure.
All right, let's bring you an update now on a story we've been following here for you on this show, and that is the one of the largest housing projects right now in Metro Vancouver. It's that proposed 80-story high tower in Burnaby and the fight over the parking around this project here. Check this out now. 14 levels of underground parking at this 80-story tower. 14 levels of parking. So we're talking over... Over 2,000 parking stalls in this giant project here. Now, here's the wrinkle on this now. This project is just steps away from the Lowheed SkyTrain station. So some critics saying, wait a second here now. Why do you need so much parking in this particular tower? Why not have fewer parking stalls so you can attract people who will take public transit you've got a skytrain station right next door do you really need all of that parking now this is a a fight that they've had in many other cities and jurisdictions not only across canada but in across north america as well in california for example uh, they've brought in laws saying reducing required parking spots for housing developments that are near rapid transit i've got john stovell standing by to discuss have a listen here now this is california state senator anthony portentino on this point have a listen we want to get people out of their cars we want to incentivize alternative modes of transportation we want to make sure that we respect a movement towards an alternative way of getting to work which is on a bicycle which is on mass transit if there's no parking you're going to attract people who don't have cars you're going to attract people who bike to work who walk to work who use mass transit okay if you have no parking you get people using public transit instead that's the argument that's the idea so you're building an 80-story tower right next to a SkyTrain station. Do you really need 14 levels of underground parking? Let's discuss it now with my guest, John Stavell. John is the CEO of Reliance Properties. Very pleased to welcome John back to the show. John, thanks a lot for coming on today. Hi, good morning, Mike. Hey, John, does this make sense to you? You're going to build an 80-story tower right next to a SkyTrain station, and you got 14 levels of underground parking. Do they really need all that parking out there in Burnaby? Well, I think first, you know, we have to understand that that uh, all developments need parking, whether they're on transit or not. This this development has a component of commercial in it as well, which has a different type of parking need. But what really, at the end of the day, the parking in this project is being driven by the Burnaby bylaw, by the Burnaby minimum. And I think I'm just looking at one of the reports here. There's something like 37, over 3,700 parking stalls in this parkade and 6,300, 6,400 bike, bike parking. So it really is Burnaby's parking bylaw itself being out of step with the context of this development being right on transit. Does yes, that the much? Build, yeah, developers should be able to build the parking that they think they need to meet the requirements of the development, but they shouldn't be having, in my view, to build this much. Yeah, do you think that when you're when a developer is required to put that much parking and dig that deep, I mean to go 14 stories underground for this underground parking, over 2000 parking stalls in this in this project. Does that inflate the cost of the project? Well, of course, uh, you know, I yeah. mean parking parking generally rule of thumb right now is is about $100,000 per stall of costs. 
plus a lot of additional time it, it'll take the development that this big parking lot will add a year and a half to two years to the development if you're to build it right from grade say which you wouldn't but it, it's a significant increase in cost and time and do those costs get passed on to the to the consumer right like this is a project that's going to have a lot of uh below market rentals but if, if you are forcing that much parking to be sunk into the ground does that raise the cost of the pro of the project or, or for people to buy a place or even to rent a place does it jack up the rents as a result potentially well, i mean all the all the costs of doing the development have to be paid for <clears throat> from the revenue of the development so yeah. condominiums are parking included it'll increase the cost of those for people who want to buy may be able to buy a parking stall as a choice it'll increase their costs and it yeah it'll just ripple through the entire development Let's have a listen to Burnaby City Councillor Allison Gu here on this point. She was on the show last week talking about this project, and she's concerned about how much parking is being dug into the ground here for this 80-story tower. And she's, look, you know, you're right beside a SkyTrain station. Why are we forcing all this parking to be built? She also makes a point here. Can't we reduce the amount of parking and maybe people can have more car share spots if they need a car occasionally? Here's what you had to say to me, John. I'll get your thoughts. Burnaby City Councilor Allison Gu here. We can significantly increase the ratios of car share spots in this project uh, to ensure mm -hmm. that, you know, if people want to go out of town or if they need to do their groceries, that they have reliable access to vehicles that they share with others. And currently there are 25 car share parking spots proposed for this project. But we can reduce the total amount of parking spaces, increase the number of car share options available. What do you think of that idea, John, where she says, look, let's reduce the number of parking spots in this tower. And if people really need a car on occasion, well, let's create some parking spots for car share for car share vehicles. What do you think of that idea? Yeah, I mean, she's, she's definitely got the right idea. And look, this type of what transportation demand, you know, responses are, are very common in other municipalities. You know, in this report I've been reviewing, the city of Vancouver, uh, <clears throat> currently their bylaws are only at 41% of the requirement of this project of Burnaby. So Vancouver's already 60% less parking required than Burnaby. And in Vancouver, if you want to go even below that 41%, you can go, you can go all the way to zero in the downtown and along Broadway. But then, you're, yes, you're going to bring in and you're going to provide multiple car shares, additional bike storage, electrified bike storage, that kind of thing. So, you know, this just shows that Burnaby's a real outlier here in terms of the region um, and North America, you know, with, you know, not, you know, cities from Vancouver to Toronto, Seattle, Chicago, um, they're all at, at around 50% or below 50% of what Burnaby's currently requiring. So I think this is just an example of a municipality with, that's been a suburban municipality. Uh, and has now this benefit of the very significant rapid transit system running through it, and, and, and the bylaws are simply out of step with current realities. Speaking of John Stovell, Reliance Properties, we're talking about that 80-story tower proposed in Burnaby and all the parking that's required there. Let's have another listen to the city councillor on the show last week here. John, I'll get your thoughts. Burnaby City Councillor Allison Gu, and she talks here about the cost of creating all these parking spots and how that just gets passed on to people who are buying condos or renting properties. Let's have a listen to what she had to say. 
at normal project excavation levels, it's um, estimated to cost about $50,000 to $100,000 per stall. And that becomes increasingly expensive. Yeah, so you made that point earlier that these costs just get passed on. Bottom line here, do you feel like Burnaby should say, say to developers, okay, go ahead, build us this badly needing needed housing that we need. And if, hey, listen, if you're right next to a SkyTrain station, you don't have to build as much parking. Your thoughts? Yeah, totally. I mean, Burnaby's got to get its parking bylaws, particularly around transit, in line with, with current practices. And, you know, what's interesting is I believe right now Burnaby's, uh, in response to all the controversy about this, they're proposing that this development and other developments around transit can actually build less parking, still a very high amount in my view, but they're actually wanting to charge the developer to not build that parking. Yeah. So for the councillor there, those cost savings are not going to be as significant if developers choose to not build a parking stall, but then I have to pay, I think it's $40,000 to the municipality for each stall they don't build. John, we're following this one closely. Thanks for coming on with your thoughts on it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.